just tuned in to join the Word with beloved Bible teacher and author Pam Jenkins. And we're so honored that you would join us in the opening of God's Word. Today is going to be a marvelous day in the Word of God as Pam opens up the very pages that give us life and give us purpose. So let's join Pam now as she reveals the truth of the day. Well, it is our fifth week together, believe it or not. And um, so we are, we're kind of trucking right along, but I want you to write at the top of your note sheet, if you're taking notes, the miracle, the miracle of brokenness. There's a miracle that's wrapped up in the brokenness of our lives. And I want us to see that in the story that would have been part of your, uh, your study. And the problem, the challenge for me anyway, in our studies is there's so much packed in every chapter of John. It's which one to focus on when we get into the teaching. And so it's kind of hard, you know, God lead and direct. But I think, I think that we're where God wants us to be tonight. But we know that Jesus is in the throes of his ministry. He's about to take a, a boat over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have put him geographically in Tiberias. And I love the city of Tiberias. And it's, a, it's a, a set on a hillside and you've got the Sea of Galilee uh, down at the bottom. It's just a beautiful little quaint place to be. And so this is where we see Jesus heading over for what we're going to study tonight. And we're going to pick up our reading in John chapter six, and we're going to start in verse one. We're going to go all the way through 14 during our lesson, but not all at once. But after these things, it says, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. A large crowd was following him. Jesus had been doing all these miracles because they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Remember the guy with the pallet? I mean, they've been seeing these amazing things. And even John writes towards the end of his gospel, if everything Jesus did that we saw him, the miracles do, he said the books of the world couldn't contain them. So we're just a privy to these little selected things that, that, that God wants to pin through John for us. And, but they're following Jesus because they've seen what he's done in the lives of the sick, the signs that he was performing. But Jesus goes up on the mountain, it tells us, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. So point number one, our first point tonight, if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to, right at the end of your lesson is a place to do that. I want you to write the following. I want us to look at the following right here. Because it says that Jesus, there was a large crowd. He goes over to Tiberias, and this large crowd was following him. Well, what does this word in the original language mean for us? We kind of get a picture in our own language, but when we go back to the Greek the original text, what does it mean? So the word following, let me give you what it means. Following right here means to side with, to side with. You know, will you be on my side in this? If you ever ask somebody, I, what's, whose side are you on? So that's what it means, to side with, to be on his side, to walk the same road as. It means to accompany one in life, to accompany them in life. To profess, and this is a big one, to profess to be one's disciples, disciple. In other words, the verbal speaking of being one's disciple. 
So it's, it's, it, we, we got to catch the word to profess to be a disciple. So when we look at this back, this meaning right back here in the text, when it says a large crowd was following him, we can understand that this was a large crowd that is saying, professing to be a disciple, professing to be on the same side or following Jesus. So it gives us this understanding of a verbal profession. Nothing that's really been backed up, in other words. So this crowd, this large crowd is following him. And this profession, this, this speaking, hey, I'm a disciple of Jesus, which in our day would mean I, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And so he sees, you know, this crowd, this large crowd is, is following him. So what does it mean to be a disciple, those who are following Jesus? Because they're professing to be a disciple. But if we look at God's word in other places, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14 what a true disciple is. And it's hard. So brace yourself. It's, it's hard what a true disciple of Jesus means. So Luke 14, 26 and 27, Luke 14, 26 and 27. And we're going to drop down and get another verse in just a minute out of the same chapter. But in Luke 14, 26 and 27, Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. That's, that's pretty strong right there, right? Whoever does not carry his own cross, verse 27, and come after me cannot be a disciple. Wow. And then Luke 14, 33 says, so then none of you, none of you, it's like Jesus, he's, he's pouring this hard message out in Luke 14. You ought to go soak in it. It was very convicting. So then none of you, he says, can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. So if I took a census in this auditorium tonight, based on these three verses, how many of you would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus? I'm looking for hands. I'm scanning the sanctuary. Say, Pam, that's hard. And that's, that's Jesus's words. This is his words. This is the word of God. When Jesus says, and this is what he says, whoever does not hate his own life and hate his family's life, because he goes through, I mean, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even your own life. You say, Pam, I thought we weren't to hate. Well, let's remember when we translate things from one language to another, we lose some things. So let me give you what the word hate right here means. So we understand what is Jesus saying? The word hate means to love less. Hmm, to love less. It means that they, meaning family and even you, because you're in there, cannot determine your reason for living. Your source of joy or purpose. It would be very easy for me because I love, I'm Grammy. So I love my grandbabies. I love to be with them. I love to wrestle and chase the boys outside. I love to still try to climb trees. I'm not as good at it as my age as I would like to be, but I like to do the spit bubbles with the boys and everything. We have spit bubble contests and, you know, we, they, we just run wild like, you know, like, like kids. And I love that. And I love to be with the girls. I love to be with my granddaughters. I love my daughters. I love my son-in-laws. I love my family dearly. But they cannot 
Listen, and I've told my, my children this, I would give my life for you, but I cannot live my life for you. And there's a difference. I believe this is what Jesus is saying. They cannot determine your reason, reason for living, your source of joy or purpose. They cannot be your object of worship or what you base your life's direction upon. Now, he didn't say that just about your family. He said that about you too. You can't love your own self unless you hate your own self more, you know, the, the same with the family. You got to hate your own life if you're going to be my disciple. So if we put the meaning in here, unless you love yourself less, unless you understand that you or no one else is your, is to determine your reason for living, your source of joy or purpose. It's why we tell people in the counseling world that want to get their life better from a hard, hard place. It cannot be for anyone else. Jesus is saying, what you do and your purpose for living, you cannot be your object of worship. And I mean, heavenly days, our world needs that message, right? You cannot, you're not your object to be your object of worship. You cannot base your life's direction on your family, on yourself. I knew the most godliest man, and I loved him. And I won't say his name here because I, I, I don't want his wife to see this. And, and be embarrassed. But I love this family. Now, this man is in heaven now, and he was a, just a dear saint to me in my younger years of, of, of my walk with the Lord. And I remember him telling me, because me and my husband and our girls, we became missionaries to Japan for about nine years. And I remember him telling me, we had this conversation, and he, I mean, just big tears in his eyes, and he said, I know God that God called me to be a missionary. And he named the place. And he said, I knew it. I knew that God, this is where God wanted us. He said, but my wife refused. And he said, and I let her make that decision for our family. She said, no, you're not going. We're not going. And he said, do you know what it's like to have God use you? To know the touch of God on your life with these people that he'd been ministering to? And then when you say no... For God to put you on a shelf over here and him not use you. And this was some 20 years later at this point, And he said, it was the, mis the one mistake if I could go back and be the leader that I should have been. He said, but I let my family dictate to me what we would do for God and what we would not do. And I listen, I understand that's a hard place to be. But you see, our, our family, ourselves, we have to know the will of God and follow that. We have to follow that. And I believe when we're willing to say, yes, God's waiting on our obedience first, everything else follows obedience, not the other way around. When everything's in place, then I'll say yes to God. And so these are the words of Jesus to be a disciple. And these are people who are following Jesus over to Tiberias saying, you know, we're professing to be a disciple of yours. He, go, he also says those who carry their own cross and come after me and give up all their own possessions. That's what a disciple is. Let me give you what the word disciple 
right here means. Disciple means one who follows another's teaching in life, a learner or student of someone or of one, a learner or student of one. And I'm glad that a disciple doesn't have to know everything. We're a student. We're a learner. Listen, I'm a lifelong learner. The more I learn about God's Word, the more I learn I don't know. And the more you study God's Word, you find out something that the more you think you're studying God's Word, but it's really God's Word that studies you. It studies you. It works in you and it brings stuff to light and it brings stuff to the surface. So when it says that Jesus sees this multitude and they're professing to be his disciple, they're professing to be someone who follows his teaching in life, a learner. So let me ask you a question. Why do you follow Jesus? Because Jesus, we know this crowd, they were following because of what they had seen him do and healing the sick. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because of the blessing, the power, the fear of punishment if you don't? Is it only to appease or check the box of religious requirement? Or is it because you are a true disciple? Is it because you are a true disciple? So these people were following by what they had seen with their eyes. So let me give you a nugget right here. Your nugget right here is following by sight, following by sight rather than faith. And it's difference, two different things. Following by sight rather than faith will never be willing to pay the price that discipleship requires. That's that's painful. That's a painful, convicting truth right there. Following by sight, in other words, what I I, I'm I'm just gonna follow what I can see. Following by sight, which is what these people were doing. Following by sight rather than faith will never be willing to pay the price that discipleship cost. And let me say this to you. If you've been following the Lord any length of time, you already know this. But at some point, and it will continue, there's a price to pay to follow Jesus when you first become a Christian, but there's a price that you will keep paying as you follow him. As you keep following, the further you go with him, the greater the price. The price doesn't go away. It's not a one-time decision. It's not a one-time decision. You have to surrender the thought that you can't please everybody. You can't make everybody happy. You're not here for anybody but him. He's your guide. He's your purpose. He's your reason. He's your world. He's your truth. He's your, he's your plumb line that you line your life up to with everything. But there's a price to pay for that as you keep journeying with him. Sometimes it's going to be the loss of, of a friendship. Sometimes it's going to be, okay, I've got to let that dream go right there. I've got to, I've got to change that way. I've got to change that thinking. I've got to forgive. I've got to let go. I've got to embrace. The more you follow Jesus, and sometimes it might be your own family, those closest to you that will reject you. So sometimes when you follow Jesus, there's a price to pay. But if you're only following by sight, what happens when you don't see evidence of him working? What happens? You quit. 
when it gets hard, when it gets tough, when there's a price tag that comes along with this season right here to keep following him. Well, I don't see any evidence. I think it was Paul that wrote, hey, you, you, you began this journey with Christ by faith. Are you going to continue it by works? In other words, things you could see. See, it's a journey of faith. And these disciples that were coming to Jesus, professing to be, they were following because of what they had seen. They were untested. Let me give you this quote right here, and I like it. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not an effort of once a week or once a day. It is an effort of once and for all. I like that, don't you? It's an effort of once and for all. It's not an effort once a week or once a day. It's a once and for all kind of effort. Once and for all kind of effort. So I want us to continue reading in verse 5. It says, And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he saw this great company coming to him, and he said to Philip, he puts the spotlight, bam, on Philip right here. Okay, Philip, I'm bringing you into this lesson. And I'm sure as John is pinning these things that he's saying, boy, I'm glad it's Philip on the hot seat right here and not me. Because he pins this story for us and it says, Jesus asked him a question. He sees this crowd and we know from the other, this story's in all the other three gospels. And we do know that some sort of teaching had been taking place. And it is at the time of Passover, we can know that. The Passover is approaching. And he asked Philip the question, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he was saying this only to test him, to test Philip. And he says, for he himself knew that he intended what he intended to do. And Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them for each to receive just a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here. For who has five barley loaves and two fish? But what are these for so many people? Point number two, the supply. The supply. We see the following, and now we see the supply. We see the supply. So I want us to take note of the question that Jesus asked, because it's an interesting question when you think about the need at hand. You've got all of these people, a grand multitude, probably would have been in the thousands, And the first question that Jesus asked is, where are we to buy food? Now, we know it was at least 5,000, but it would have been thousands, including the women and children. So he asked his, his disciple, he asked this one question, where are we to buy that these may eat? Let me give you what the word where right here means, because it's important to us. The word where that Jesus uses is very intentional here. The question is very intentional. The word where right here speaks of source. Source, origin, from what author or giver, from what condition. I love the picture that this is painting for us. Where are we to buy bread, he says, And he's very intentional to use the word bread. Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? When he uses the word where, he's asking, what is the origin or the source, the author or the giver, or from what condition will these people be able to be fed? That's what he's asking Peter. 
I love what J.C. Ryle says right here. He says, Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, the Son of God Almighty, to set, mighty to save, but the Son of Man able to feel. He's not just the Son of God mighty to save, but He's also the Son of Man able to feel. So when, when this professing crowd, and Jesus knows why they're following Him, because He addresses it on the other shoreline. He knows why they're following Him, but yet His heart, when He sees this crowd, and, and we know there was probably teaching going on, He knows why they're following Him, but He looks because He wants to meet the need. But in meeting this physical need, he's teaching us a spiritual principle, just like he wants to teach his disciples. So he asked Philip this question, where are we to buy bread? Where? See, I would have been in the way that I think I'm an analytical thinker. Where are we to buy bread? He didn't say, how are we to feed these people? How are we to meet this need? Isn't that our first question, is how? How are we going to make this happen? How are we to do this? How in, in the world can we ever accomplish this, God? How is this going to turn out to be good? How, how, how are you going to get the glory for this? We love the word how, don't we? It's just three little letters, but it'll drive you nuts trying to find the answer. How, God? I want to know how. Just give me the plan. Write it out step by step by step. Am I the only how asker in the sanctuary tonight? But he didn't ask that question. And this need was huge. I mean, huge. Where, he says. What is the source, Philip? What is the origin? Who's the supply? Where are you going to go to find the answer to the need? That's the question that he poses. And Andrew chimes in because we know that he's standing there, obviously. And these two men, they kind of start throwing out some things. But let me tell you what Jesus says about himself. And you would have read this this week in John chapter 6, 35, 48, and 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me, he will not be hungry. And the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then he says in verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Verse 51 of this same chapter, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of this world is also my flesh, me. I'm the source is what he's wanting Philip and Andrew to get. And the people. So if I were to ask you this question, where is your source? Anytime a need comes up now, and in ministry, great needs happen all the time. They present themselves. You don't go, I don't go looking for a need. It just finds me. It has my address. But anytime a need comes, whether it's personally, my family, a situation, and I've learned if I don't know what to do, I don't do anything. I just wait on God and I pray. Because I've gotten in more trouble by these two hands trying to take hold of things that I shouldn't with good intentions. But I have learned to say, I've learned 
to say, Pam, you're not the source. People are not your source. I know the source. I've learned the where, but I've learned the where. I've been taught the where out of great need, out of overwhelming, can't meet this need. It's much bigger than me being in that setting. It's how I've learned the where. Because if you don't learn the where, the need will not be met. The need will go unmet. The opportunity will pass by. If you don't know the where, you won't step out when you need to step out. We got to know the where, not the how. We don't have to know the how. But we do need to know the where. Let me give you a nugget right here. We will always find discouragement when looking for the how rather than in knowing the where. We will always find discouragement when looking for the how rather than in knowing the where. I've had more broken people, more broken families and couples sit in front of me and they don't know how God's going to work, how God's going to get them through these things. And any counselor at JBOC could tell you the same thing. But you, you, you're not in ministry as long as the Lord has allowed me to be in ministry and not see some overwhelming situations that are so devastating, so traumatic, so heart-wrenching that you just, if you weren't a believer, you think, God, there's no way that anyone could get through this. There's no way that any hope or they could get on the other side of this. And God lovingly reminds me, no, 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 there's a source, there's a bread of life that will meet any need, any need. And this is what he wants his disciples to know. And he says this, and we, we read this, he says, and he said this to prove him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. If we go back to the text, in verse 6, it says, but he was saying this only to test him, to test who? Philip. For Jesus himself knew what he intended to do. This is what I, I know. And test here also means prove. And I'm going to give you what this word means. So let me, let me give you this, and I'm going to say this. Prove means to make a trial into a truth in its basic meaning. Don't you love that? That's a slap your neighbor right there. Y'all are looking at me like I've got three heads tonight. Jesus, this word prove or test here, it means to, to take, listen, to take a trial, to take a trial, to turn a trial into a truth. Yes, thank you, Jessica. Slapping glory, I love it. I'm glad you're here this here tonight, bub. To take, listen, he'll turn a trial. He wants to teach through a trial into truth. He can turn a trial into truth, into understanding that you couldn't have had any other way. So it said that Jesus knew what he intended to prove through this situation, through Philip's response and Andrew chiming in. To teach, listen, to make a trial, to teach, to make a trial into a truth. And I love this nugget right here. This is a, when you think about it, now hold on to your britches. When you think about this nugget that's coming, you're going to want to slap yourself. Are you ready? Jesus turns our trials into tables. 
that's a, if Allie were here, that would be a t-shirt. That's a sink your, sink my boat t-shirt. Jesus, listen, he'll take our trials, he'll turn it, he'll turn our trials into tables. What do you mean, Pam, to feed? To feed ourselves, to feed people, a table. Listen, and no one sets a table better than the Lord. No one prepares a table like the Lord. And he will do it in some of the most deserted places in our walk with him, in our most challenging and difficult passages. It's like he's, we think that we're just starving to death spiritually and the Lord's saying, I'm trying to feed you. I'm, I'm spreading a table of manna that you don't know about. I want to feed your soul. I don't want to feed what you think you need because I'm all about what I think I need. And the shocker of living is he's not interested in that. He's not interested in what I think or what my plan is. But he spreads, he takes our trials and he turns them into tables in moments that I'm going to feed in a way that you have no idea what I'm doing until it's passed. Listen, and it's a table that'll keep on feeding. It's a table that will keep on feeding. So he turns our trials into tables. Point number three, the reality. And the reality right here is laid out for us in verses seven and nine. Because they say, they, they, they give their, their, their scope, 200 pennies worth, or denarii, we would call it a penny, worth of bread is not sufficient for all of these, is what he's saying. That everyone's going to be able to take a little. We read this just a minute ago. One of his disciples, Andrew, Peter's brother, said, there's a lad with two small fishes, but what are they among so many? It's like one has looked into the bank account, what they had, and then one has scoped the crowd and they know what, what, what they have. I mean, even down to the children. I mean, that's pretty thorough, right? Hey, kid, what's in there? Hey, what you got? Everybody come bring what you got. Nobody had anything except, listen, out of thousands and thousands of people, thousands of men alone, not including the women and children, and only one lad, a child, had any food. That's a pretty desperate situation. And they're looking into the bank account. They're looking into, you know, that money bag that we know that Judas was skimming from. And they're, they're looking into their funds, their own resources. And then they're looking, they've scoped the crowd and they know this is all we have. But what is that compared to so many? And this is what in a crisis our flesh will do. We immediately, when we feel like, okay, God is, I think, leading us to do this, and, and this is what we need to be doing. We immediately go to our own resources, don't we? That's the first place we usually turn. Our bank account, our cupboards, our own abilities. So we'll turn inward first, and second, we'll turn to others, the resources of others. It's very easy, listen, especially running a ministry that operates by faith. It would be very easy when a, a need comes along that's huge, it's bigger than our bank account that we know we have to have. It's very easy for us to look at the bottom line in making a decision we know God wants us to do. Or when it's not there, plan B 
is let me think, who has the resources to help? Am I the only sinner in the sanctuary? Isn't that our nature? It's our nature. It's our nature, but Jesus is wanting to prove something. It is not about the resources of others. It is not about your own resources. And we also tend to size up the need, the task, versus what we think we're able to do. Like the, kind of like the Israelites did when they came out from scoping the land. We're not able. Look at our size compared to their size. Look at our abilities compared to their abilities. But Jesus is trying to prove something. He's trying to show where the source is. Listen, I don't always follow through with this, but I, I, I certainly try. When there is, a, I know God wants us to go here, and usually it's the, obedient, the, the, the obedience comes first and the resources follow. So it's, a, is this really the will of God? That's my struggle. It's not the resources. It's knowing the heart and mind of God to be in the very center of his will and leading a ministry and even for my own life. Because I know God is the resource. But that's the struggle. God, don't, don't let me try to figure it out. Don't let me back up to that place of desperation when things get, get trying or challenging. And this was a challenging situation. So if we keep, listen, by the way, that the, what the, the money that they did have, 200 denarii or pennies that we would call, that would have been a little over six months wages. They needed a lot of money. And it wouldn't have even begun to touch the need. If we keep reading, this is how Jesus responds. But the Lord, Lord, we don't have this. This is all we have. And this is all we have is this little lunch right here. I mean, it's some loaves and some fishes. Have you seen the crowd, Lord? And this is his response. Have them recline. Do you know if we could translate that into Pam's own theology? Have them get the napkins. Have them put on the bibs because we're about to serve dinner. They understood what that meant because in, in, in their time, reclining meant you're about to be fed. He said, you have them recline to eat. I wish, I wish they'd had cameras back then and you could have captured their faces. Did you look at this lunch? But we told you this is our resources. And Jesus' response was, you have them get ready to eat. I'm testing you. I'm proving myself to you. If you don't know the where, you will never be able to accomplish the work that I have for you to do. And you have never been your where, and no person should ever be your where. It's me, Jesus said. You have them reclined to eat. Now, there was plenty of grass in this place. So the men reclined climbed about 5,000 in number. And we know later there were women and children. But it says he took the loaves. And after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were reclining. Likewise, also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten, listen, their fill. God, even if we took all our resources, I mean, people would just get a nibble. What we have to offer will never, never satisfy. It'll never meet the need. But it said they ate their fill. 
as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he now says to his disciples, he gives them two instructions, have the people recline and eat, gather up the leftover pieces. You see, and this is what I'm studying and, and writing. This is my, my journey right now. It's all about the overflow. The overflow of obedience, the overflow of trust, the overflow of knowing that I am absolutely secure in doing anything that Jesus calls me to do. The overflow here, listen, he says, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. They gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with pieces, listen, from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, the people saw the sign which he performed. This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Our last point is the answer. Point number four, the answer. You see, he, if he distributed this bread and Jesus did it himself, you know, we know he gives thanks. But it says that Jesus took the bread first and then he takes the fish likewise. But he begins to distribute it, which means what? He has to break those, those five loaves, uh, barley loaves. He has to break them and he has to tear them in pieces to be able to give them out. And we don't know, you know, we do know some of the other gospels, uh, kind of a little bit of the method, but we don't know exactly. But Jesus just kept breaking. It was placed in his hands. Let me give you a nugget right here. The bread must be broken before it can impart life. The bread must be broken for, before it can impart life. Before it can impart life. This is where this picture of brokenness, because he goes on to teach them. I'm the bread of life and it's my body the, the bread of life that I'm telling you is my body broken for you. That's my flesh, he said. He's speaking of the brokenness of the cross, which he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you're willing to carry your own cross, which means you got to be broken to do that. He says, this bread, we know that this bread must be broken before it can impart life. What do we learn? We learn that it supplies. It satisfied, didn't it? It sustained and it speaks. Let me give you these real quickly again. It supplies, it satisfies, it sustains, because they had 12 baskets, listen, left over. And it speaks into the future needs that we might, that they might have ever had going forward that Jesus is enough. I'm so glad that I don't have to be enough. The world will teach you that philosophy all day long that you are worthy, that you are enough. Listen, all of that is a spin on truth. It's twisted truth. You have worth, but you will never be worthy of the cross of Calvary. Listen, apart from Jesus, we'll never be worthy for Jesus to have died for us. We'll never be enough on our own. What is this? And listen, the guys got that right. What is our supply based on the need? It's nothing compared to it. The need is far greater, far greater than we have resources to meet. I think half of our challenge in following the Lord is we have ourselves up on a higher pedestal than we need to, than we ought to. It's a gospel, it's a twisted gospel of self-reliance. 
a gospel of independence, a gospel of you are enough, you are worthy. Listen, that's not the gospel of the cross. That's not the gospel of the Bible. You say, Pam, you mean I'm not worthy? No. But you have, you have worth. You have value because you're created in the image of God. Having worth and being worthy are not the same thing. We have worth, and I'm glad we do. But I'm so glad that I didn't have to be worthy because if I was... If that, if that principle was in place, I wouldn't be a Christian today. But Jesus was worthy, him alone. Who's worthy to open the book? I don't see the answer in Revelation saying, we're worthy. We were told all our lives on the earth, you're worthy. But who was the only one found worthy in heaven? To open the scroll, it was Jesus. So we have a tainted gospel today, and if we don't know the truth, the real gospel, what it really means to be a disciple, we'll get sucked into that stuff. There's some sayings on people's shirts representing the Christian world that I just want to rip right off of them. When I see it out in public, do you know that that shirt's a lie right there? And I have done that before in public, and I shouldn't have, but I've done that. Do you know that that's not quite true, sister? What's on your shirt? That's not quite true. That belief, that sign on your wall, that's not quite true. See, the hard truth is this, that we're from Adam and Eve, and our need is greater than we can supply or that anyone else can meet. In the day that we answer the question, Where are you to find the bread that you need for your life, your sustenance, your value, your worth, your purpose, your drive, your reason for living, the healing for that brokenness, acceptance for that rejection, the ability, the power to forgive the unforgivable, to let go of that, to say no to that, to break that off, to let go of the past mistakes. The need is greater than we have the resources. And until we can answer this question, where are you going to find the bread that you need to meet your need? How's your soul going to be fed? Where Where are you finding it? Is it in yourself? You'll come up empty every time. That's the gospel of self-reliance. It's a lie. And I will say this as we begin to close down our time on brokenness, because there, listen, there is a power. There's a beautiful, supernatural power, miracle about brokenness. Psalm 51, 17, David had sinned greatly. And with two verses I want us to look at in Psalm 51, he says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Verse 8, if you jump up, he says, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. It was not until, it was not until the bread was broken that the miracle took place. And sometimes God will come along and he will break your life through the challenges of everyday living, 
through hardships, through sicknesses, through losses. Listen, even through mistakes, when he allows us, okay, you shouldn't make that decision. And he lovingly, it's like parents sometimes, we have to let our children learn the hard way. But when it was broken, it became a power tool in the hands of the Lord. Listen, what we put in his hands. See, we got to give what we have, even though it's so little. It might only be, you know, some loaves of bread and some fishes compared to the need. What is that, God? But if we will entrust what we do have, even if it's a mess, I don't even have a lunch worthy to give the Lord. Whatever it is, we can give to him. And once it's in his hands, he can break it. And he can do more with it if we had hung on to it. And I've often thought what that little boy thought that day about his lunch. wonder if he'd been selfish with it. wonder if he hadn't been willing to turn it over. Or that little mama whose, whose hands fixed it. Or whoever, it could have been grandma for all we know. Whoever fixed that lunch, that little boy could have fixed his own lunch. We don't know. But I will say this. Let me close with Elizabeth Elliot quote. She says, Sometimes the Lord will break our life into a million pieces because He intends to feed the multitude with its fragments. Sometimes He will break our lives into a million different pieces because He intends to feed the multitude with its fragments. You see, if the offering was left whole, it would never have fed the multitude or had the abundance of power to impact lives in the future. See, I do know this. I've learned this the hard way. Increase, and I'm not talking financial, but increase for the kingdom of heaven comes through surrendering what will never be enough into his hands who is always enough. Let me say that again. It's our last nugget. Increase comes through surrendering what will never be enough into His hands, who is always enough. Who is always enough. She said, Pam, my life is just broken. Wonderful. You're in a good place. But you don't know, my my life's been shattered. Oh, you're in a perfect place. I'm ruined. Awesome. I've lost everything. Great. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Lord, what is this compared to the need? It's not enough. What we have will never be enough. Will never be enough. It's in that that miracle of brokenness. Whatever that brokenness looks like, and I promise, this is on my last quote, A.W. Tozier, it's too good not to give you. And with this, we'll close. A true disciple does not consider Christianity a part-time commitment. He has become a Christian in all parts of his life or her life. He has reached the point where there is no turning back. There was a moment when that little boy had to give over his lunch and there was no turning back once it began to be broken by the hands of the Lord. There's a place where we come with the Lord where there's no turning back. Listen, I'm at that, that place in the season of my life. There's no turning back. I could probably go back and I may not know the exact moment it happened, 
But I know that the cost of following Jesus is nothing compared to the cost of quitting at this stage in my life. And you know you've crossed that threshold somewhere when that is the truth for you, that that's your belief. Whatever it is, we can turn it into His hands. Amen. You've been listening to Join the Word with beloved Bible teacher and author Pam Jenkins. Here at JBOP Ministries, we're so honored that you would join us for the reading of God's Word. We pray that today's message has been an encouragement to your soul. Join us next time for Join the Word with Pam Jenkins. God bless y'all.